and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you chronologically through Swedish history one episode at a time. This is episode 52 and my name is Chris. And I'm Elsa. Last time we saw the conclusion of what one of our listeners called a Game of Thrones-like story and what historian being Liljegren called a family feud of Shakespearean proportions. We have reached 1319, with the son of Duke Erik, Magnus Eriksson, being crowned king of both Norway and Sweden in the space of a few months. This time round, we'll look at what kind of kingdom this very young boy inherited, and what sort of challenges might be coming his way. But first, we have a Swedish phrase of the week to talk about. This time, it is Nedakomatikritam. And that literally translates to English as when it comes down to the chalk. It actually has nothing to do with chalk or writing on a blackboard. It's sort of similar to the English phrase when all is said and done, when there's nothing more to say, when you've reached the sort of end point, then you say, well, when it comes down to the chalk, the only thing that matters is that everyone's happy. Cool. Well, when it comes down to the chalk, all that matters is that Magnus is now king of Sweden, and we'll see what happens. (laughs) That's a great use of the phrase. So, here we are. We have this situation where young Magnus Eriksson is now king of Norway and Sweden. But we've had a break for a few weeks from this narrative to talk about the Great Copper Mountain Mine and then a bit of medieval trivia, uh, so to speak, last time around. So, especially considering what is going to happen along the way in Magnus's reign, we should probably look back at how we got to this point briefly, to the point where two kingdoms have the same king for the very first time in Swedish history. And then we'll look at what challenges Magnus has as he goes forward and start his story properly. So how did we get here exactly? Well, let's start with Sweden. Sweden was at civil war on and off for over a decade. King Birja, Magnus's uncle, fought and fought and fought against his own two brothers, uh, Magnus's dad, Duke Erik, and their other brother, Valdemar. After a number of dramatic events, including the Hjortuna Games, where Birjo was captured and imprisoned by his brothers, Birjo eventually ended up on top, capturing and then starving his two brothers to death after the Nyköpings Gestabud. Unfortunately for Sweden, but luckily enough for the now King Magnus, that didn't bring an end to the turmoil. Allies of the dukes continued the war, capturing King Birjo's son and forcing the king off the Swedish mainland, first to Gotland and then on to Denmark. As we begin this period in 1319, King Birja is still in exile in Denmark. His son is in a prison cell in Stockholm, and his last remaining supporter of any substance, a knight called Johan von Brukau, is dead. 
This leaves Matt Shattleson, that famous warrior knight and veteran of many battles against Novgorod and during the Civil War, as effectively the last man standing and leader of the Duke's faction. Now, we've been calling him Matt Shettleson, and that's definitely one of the ways of saying his name, but a lot of the online sources, so mainly Wikipedia and a couple of uh, easy access books online, call him Matt Shettlemunson. So if you go and Google him, that's probably the name that will come up. But we've been using a different version of his name that's in uh, a lot of the books we actually have at home, like the Swedish Medieval Wars. He's called that in that. So that's just a FYI if you want to Google more about Matt Shettleson. Um, so, yes, Matt Shettleson, he's been Drotz and Foreman of the Provincial Ruling Council since 1318, and he's now working side by side the official regent Ingeborg, Magnus's mother. These two figures will remain important as we start the story of King Magnus, because, of course, a three-year-old, as we know well enough by now, will not be doing much ruling of his own. But what of the situation in Norway? Because remember, Magnus, uh, young King Magnus is now king of both. We've briefly covered how we got to this point, but it is good to do a bit of a summary, especially since we are a History of Sweden podcast, so we haven't gone into too much detail about the Norwegian side of things. To get a good picture, let's jump back nearly 40 years to 1280. King Magnus VI of Norway died and was succeeded by his son, Eric II. This Eric was the man who married Robert the Bruce's sister and had a daughter called Ingeborg, who married Duke Valdemar in 1312 in a joint marriage in Oslo with Swedish Duke Eric and the other Norwegian princess Ingeborg. This King Eric of Norway had no sons, so when he died, his younger brother, Håkon V, became king of Norway. Håkon, who was the father of Duke Eric's wife Ingeborg, who is the mother of our King Magnus and now regent of Sweden. Uh, did that make sense? Yes, and the throne hopped over a generation when it was inherited because Håkon also had no sons. There were no other real alternatives than to pass the throne on to his legitimate grandson through his daughter Ingeborg, despite this going through the matrilineal line of succession. King Håkon did have two other grandsons, actually, but they were also through a matrilineal line. He was previously married to the daughter of a French count, and they had had a daughter together. However, Håkon had forgotten to marry this French noblewoman before their daughter was conceived, so a few years later, after Princess Ingeborg was born, Håkon was pressured by the Norwegian nobility to make Ingeborg his primary heir, and skipping over his eldest daughter because of this uh, slight question mark over the officialness of her birth. I see. Indeed. And we know they're very uh, hung up on these sort of details. So, uh, yeah, we could have expected this. However, this eldest daughter did have two sons of her own, and these were a few years older than King Magnus. These would be his half-cousins, so they're not too consequential in the grand scheme of things, and they will never challenge for the Norwegian throne themselves. They will, however, become advisors to Magnus once they grow up, but they aren't too important to the story, so it remains to be seen if we'll mention them again or not. Chances are we won't. 
Okay, so that is why Magnus becomes king of Norway as well as Sweden. His Norwegian grandfather had no sons, and he was the only fully legitimate grandson in the picture. So that makes sense. Now we know how King Magnus got to the point where he was at the tender age of three, uh, uh, being king of both Sweden and Norway, should we look at what he has inherited? What problems has he got to solve, you know, other than learning to tie his shoelaces? Um, what does the country actually look like? Who are the main players? Yeah, because there's been so much turmoil and chaos in both countries over the last 20, 30 years or so, we thought this was a good episode to do a bit of a stock check of where we are at this point. And we've now kind of reached the point where Magnus's reign is the start of us having something to talk about in every year, sometimes every month. And we've got so much more sources and evidence to talk about from essentially from this point. So uh, it feels like it's a good point to do a stock check before we continue on this crazy journey, before we get too deep into this new part of the story. So we'd thought we'd touch a little bit on how the country is run, what the major towns are like, and that sort of thing. And like we said, what might be on Magnus's or his mother's to-do list? Yes, we mentioned a few towns, laws and traditions as they've cropped up in the story over the past 50 years or so. But it might be good to have an overall picture, especially of the situation in Sweden. So where shall we start? Well, I think it's quite important to not understate the fact that Sweden is a country that has been devastated by war. 15 years of on and off brotherly conflict which dragged in Norway and Denmark, both of whom invaded Swedish territory, burnt down towns and besieged important castles and killed Swedish soldiers, that time and this war has taken its toll on the country. Not only this, but decades of skirmishes and expeditions against Novgorod had turned many parts of Finland into a battlefield too. Not much had changed on the map in terms of territory, but we've seen many expeditions to Finland by the people of Novgorod, and the reverse into Novgorod by people like Matt Shettelson. The Finns and the Tavastians are still under Swedish rule in Finland, with the Karelians mainly subservient to the Novgorod Republic further east. Vibor, out east, is pretty much still the most eastern point of Swedish influence, with the fortress there marking a line in the sand against Novgorod. Heading back to Stockholm, though, on the other side of the Baltic Sea, as the dust settles from dramatic civil war, and with King Birger away in Denmark, the Duke's faction, uh, the ones that are supporting baby King Magnus, certainly have supporters, but there aren't many go-to leaders in their ranks. Mats Schettilsson is the main player, with a few other budding political actors in the council who will grow in importance in the coming years. King Magnus also has his younger sister, Euphemia. She is only two years old at this point, so their mother, Ingeboy, has a full-time job, uh, or two full-time jobs. She's running the country and raising her two children. As we mentioned in episode 49, the monarchy as a whole has been weakened by the whole affair between Bielio and his brothers. The Regency Council has enforced the Frihetsbrev, 
literally letter of freedom on the monarchs. This letter, sometimes called the Swedish Magna Carta due to its importance, forbids extra taxes on the nobles and guarantees the power of the council even after a regency period. Like before, being part of the nobility rested on two things, owning a lot of land and being able to fight. And being able to fight was going to be more important than ever going forward. So if Magnus or his mother were to read a summary of the kingdom, he would quickly realise Sweden wasn't exactly in the best of shape. Almost broke, rebuilding to be done, and division at home with tension abroad. But who was Magnus ruling over, at least in Sweden? Well, we're now starting to pick up some details about the kingdom and even the ordinary people. A lot of work has been done by recent historians to try and flesh out this period, and we're able to share some of their thoughts with you now. A lot of work has been done by people such as Ulla Jürgen Benedicto and James A. Bruthen on populations and life expectancy at this time, for example. Looking at the population in terms of raw numbers, Sweden is seen to be in the middle power of the three Scandinavian nations at the start of the 1300s. Denmark has around a million inhabitants, uh, while Norway only has around 350,000. Here's a quote from Benedicto on Sweden's size in comparison. The relative political and military strength of the Nordic countries suggests that Sweden's population was considerably smaller than Denmark's, which was around 1 million, and significantly larger than Norway. But no medieval evidence is extant which permits quantification of the size of Sweden's medieval population within reasonable margins of error. So we can say, judging by this, very roughly, that Sweden's population at this time is going to be around 500 to 700,000. That's quite rough. Yeah, I guess it depends on your definition of significantly larger than Norway's, but considerably smaller than Denmark. So it's pretty much somewhere in between, uh, you'd imagine, somewhere in the middle. But that's a good indication nonetheless. By comparing Sweden to Norway, we can look at the split between urban and rural too. Benedicto suggests that town populations and fishing communities, along with merchants coming and going, would have made up about 30,000 of Norway's 350,000 people. So the vast majority of people are living in the countryside and in small villages. This gives us a good scale with which to judge Sweden by because the countries are relatively similar in the urbanisation process and how people are living on a day-to-day basis. Other historians have looked more into this and have come to a few conclusions, especially about how the growth in number and importance of towns was uh, playing its part in Sweden's development. In fact, the growing, albeit relatively slow, urbanisation was one of the most notable things of this period, according to Dick Harrison. The growth of towns in Sweden was partly the result of strengthening royal power. That is, in general, rather than the immediate decline right after Magnus takes power. That's because over the past few hundred years, royal power has grown significantly from the days of kings like Inga the Younger and other kings who were barely able to keep Sweden in one piece. 
Prior to Björjöjal, essentially everyone lived rurally in Sweden. But a stronger state and a stronger church meant that the crown formed stronger physical seats of power and around those, towns grew. And the same is true for the church. But the increase of towns were also a result of the population overall increasing due to more reliable farming, more income through trade with foreign powers and technological advances. Shall we look at some of the more notable Swedish towns uh, in the 12 and 1300s? Where would you go for a city break? 1319 in Sweden. Well, uh, maybe Germany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't come. Yeah, don't just don't come. Visit Sweden had a really tough uh, <laughs> summer advertising campaign. That, that was their campaign in 1319. Don't come. Visit Sweden. Don't. Yeah. But yes, so let's start with a few towns that have appeared relatively frequently in our story up till now. We have Hreninga, originally an old market town. It's surrounded by fertile farmland in Östergötland and is first named in a letter to the Pope in 1178. And it had two churches by the end of the 1200s, showing how these towns were growing partly in thanks to the church. Jönköping is another marketplace that started to flourish due to trade, but then royal intervention in the late 1200s made it grow into a town. Magnus Ladulos built a fortress there, and of course, fortresses need homes for the builders and workers and farmers who will supply it with food, and the traders, blacksmiths, and all sorts of hangers-on that come with it. Another good thing about Jönköping is that it's quite central, so it became a good hub for trade in what was then central Sweden at the bottom of Lake Vettern. Urebru is another town that benefited from Magnus Ladulos. Before the mid-1200s it was just a small village, but then Magnus seems to have ordered it to be expanded because he felt the state needed a strong position centrally in the county of Nerka. However, royal patronage can only last so long, as we see with Kungahela. This also only really became a town because royals, both Swedish and Norwegian, liked to hang out there. We saw quite a few royal meetings there during wars or peace treaties and peace conferences early in the story. But once this royal interest died down, Kungahela literally fell off the map. It doesn't exist anymore in the modern day, but it's close to the modern Swedish town of Kungälv. Heading to the religious side of things, we have mentioned quite a few abbeys, cathedrals and monasteries. Bishop seats and cathedrals also grew into towns or maybe very large villages uh, during the 1200s. Linköping, Västerås, Strängnäs, Växjö, Uppsala, Skara and Varnhem are just a few we have mentioned repeatedly until now. Obviously Stockholm also grew and became so important thanks to royal intervention, but we talked about Stockholm in a separate episode, so we don't need to spend any time on it now. Similarly, we have discussed Visby a lot in our Gotland episode. Visby was special because of its location on a separate island. It also its strong influence of Germans and connection to the Hansa, who are only growing in importance across the Baltic Sea. And Germans helped Visby grow just like they did with Stockholm. 
this bee will actually return with a vengeance quite soon in our story, so listen out for this bee. We mentioned technological advances had helped to expand towns in this period, and one such advance is found in Söderköping on the east coast of Sweden, a bit away from Linköping. Thanks to an archaeological excavation there, we know that it had a sort of sewage system in the sense that there was a designated spot just outside of town where all the inhabitants would go and dump their rubbish. And they also had fixed latrines and dug holes into the ground to get rid of their waste. This would have indirectly helped the town grow as it would have reduced disease and helped keep the town at least a little bit more clean than it would have been before. Still, despite the patronage of royals and the church and technological improvements, Swedish medieval towns were very small. By the end of the Middle Ages, Stockholm only had around six to 7,000 inhabitants. Visby had roughly the same, maybe a bit less. By comparison, in 1300, London had about 80,000 inhabitants uh, that were provisioned by a food supply network extending 40 to 60 miles, so that's 65 to 100 kilometers, into the surrounding countryside. Uh, That's just a whole other world. No Swedish town came close to that, and even within mainland Sweden, nothing came close to Stockholm in the early 1600s. Kalmar had around 2,500-3,000 inhabitants. Jönköping, Söderköping and Lödöseb all had 1,000 to 1,500 inhabitants and all other towns counted their inhabitants in hundreds instead of thousands. It really is a huge difference, isn't it, to the rest of Europe and also, yeah, from the rest of Sweden to Stockholm and Visby. These towns having a thousand people or less are, are some of the biggest places in Sweden. It really puts everything else into perspective. You know that question you're sometimes asked, like, oh, are you a city person or a country girl? Like, everyone in Sweden in the 1300s answered, I'm a country person, even the people who lived in Stockholm. Well, you say that, but one thing that was the case was that the populations of towns soon did actually become somewhat distinct from those who lived rurally. People living in towns are often referred to as boyera. Boyera organised themselves much like farmers did, but instead of local village councils, they had town councils that decided on matters to do with the town church, the defence of the city or town, fire defence, night guards, and managing the ports if they were coastal towns. But just like Norway, if you look at the whole population of Sweden in the 1300s, very few people were Boyera. Some people who might look like Boyera still didn't quite fit the bill. Some people might not live in towns permanently, but just turn up for a few weeks to sell their stuff. Or they came from abroad, most often from Germany. And not everyone who lived in towns were independent Boyera, so to speak, either. There were also labourers, often referred to as Yasella or Lehrlinger, more like modern-day trainees if they were working in a particular trade. And then there were also beggars and those people with no fixed workplace or place to live. So yes, Swedish towns 
are actually starting to develop their own life. I take back what I say. Some people would have said they were city people. With towns becoming vibrant places of trade, worship and craft, with people travelling from other parts of the country and from abroad to visit them. But the real heartbeat of Sweden came from the countryside. Almuge is a word we see come up a lot in literature about this time period in Sweden. Almuge is a word often used to describe the ordinary people. Originally, it literally meant everyone in an area, so you could refer to the entire population of Sweden. But around the 1300s, its meaning changed to come to mean persons who weren't nobility. Ufrelse is another term often used to describe ordinary people or the masses. And that's as opposed to frelse, which is the nobility. We mentioned this previously when we talked about Alsnostadga, this law that created the nobility. And within the category frelse or nobility, there are two subcategories. There were the worldly frelse, världsligt frelse, meaning the nobility, and then there was the divine frelse, the andliga frelset, meaning the church authorities, like bishops. Farmers, in the sense of free, legally independent people, were only a small section of the Almuga, and most people in medieval Sweden would be considered poor by today's Swedish standards when it came to cash, housing, or whatever they owned. The difference between an independent farmer who owned his own land and people who didn't own land, like hired labourers, the legal yun, thralls, beggars, and those with no fixed address, was huge. When looking at this more closely, we can see that there are two main types of farmers. This difference really was becoming more distinct in the end of the 1200s and the beginning of the 1300s, so right at the Civil War period. Yes, so we had skattebønder, independent farmers who owned their own farms and paid tax to the king, and then there were landbuer, also an independent farmer who did not own their own farm or land. Instead, the land was owned by a member of the local nobility or the church, and the farm paid their tax, which was often in goods, not in money, to that person, that member of the nobility or that church authority. They paid their tax to them, not directly to the king. So, Which one was better off? I guess it depends on the political landscape at that very time and how much tax the king levied or the local nobles wanted. One benefit to being an independent farmer who paid tax to the king was that this got you at least a little bit involved in the political system of the country. The election of Magnus in Sweden was the first time that tax-paying peasants took part in the election of the Swedish king. Of course, they wouldn't have been the biggest political players, but this is a tiny step forward for this group of non-nobility in society. 
Heading back to the day-to-day life, almost all farmers were also hunters and fishermen. Uh, This was an important way of supplementing your family's food stock and would have helped adding to that tax burden to your liege. Fur from animals like fox, marten, otters, stoat, squirrel and beavers was still something that Swedes could sell on and that would eventually pay a handsome price, especially if you sold it on to the nobility on the European continent. And speaking of land, this was often inherited. As a result, if you wanted to sell land, you had to first offer it to relatives, though. This was a cause of much local conflict, perhaps understandably. Of course, the church got involved in this too, as they would. The increased power of the church led to the introduction of the idea that land could be given away as a gift, a dowry, and in your will. And this is how a lot of people would have inherited land or property. We mentioned earlier that increased technology helped towns to grow and Sweden's population increase. Between the 1100s and the 1300s, several new tools have been introduced that made farming more efficient. We mentioned a few before already in various episodes, but a small list include flails, water and wind-powered mills, harrows, horseshoes, improved harnesses, longer blades on the Ard plough, ironclad spades, our favourite, and round pole fences. In fact, farming improved so much that eventually good farmland ran out, which was a first in Sweden, and consequently more value and effort was placed on who owned the land and how it was handed over. Hence people like the church and the state getting increasingly involved in this area of life. This increased competition for land and resources led to conflict in some areas, and this led to the need to manage these resources and in turn led to things like shared use of forests to hunt in and water to fish in, and the shared use of the sort of outback areas, meaning non-farmed land in the outskirts of villages uh, that were used for animals to graze. It also led to the process of formalizing shared responsibilities through things like a formal village council. For example, building a water-powered mill was difficult and expensive, hence why it made sense for a village to pool together and build one communally. This would have been organized then by the village council. But equally, it wasn't always a joint effort by local peasants. Sometimes large farm owners invested in building their own, and monasteries too, when it comes to water-powered mills. These owners would then rent out space in the mill to smaller farmers nearby. This, of course, wasn't always the smoothest process, as people would argue over who got to use the mill for how long and how much it cost, but it would have benefited the community in the long run. So that's Sweden. Sorry for the long piece there, but this was all stuff we felt was worth mentioning in one go before the next period begins. Because when that begins, it'll be like an out-of-control freight train. There is no stopping it once Magnus gets going, and there won't be much scope for these little but very interesting details. 
Indeed, but what does the Norwegian part of Magnus' kingdom look like? Well, much like in Sweden, there's a regency council led by his mother, Princess Ingeborg, but also the other Ingeborg, the, who's also a Norwegian princess. There isn't a joint council running both countries, each of their own separate kingdoms who just happen to have the same king. And we'll see in the future, or even in the end of this episode perhaps, that these two councils end up talking to each other and arguing with each other how to solve problems because they're not both the same thing. As we mentioned briefly, the crown rules over 350,000 or so people in Norway, mostly peasants and mostly in rural communities. But most interestingly for us, Norway also comes with Shetland, Orkney, the Faroe Islands, Iceland and Greenland. So it's sort of buy one, get five free. And this is a huge geographical area. Most of these places have been undisputably Norwegian for centuries at this point. They aren't just loose connections and Magnus has half a claim and half a town somewhere. These are part of the Norwegian crown. It's only Iceland which came under direct Norwegian control quite recently, and that was in the middle of the 1200s. We mentioned last time that this makes Norway-Sweden the biggest kingdom in Europe by geographical size. Definitely not by people, though. Even Denmark alone is bigger than both Sweden and Norway combined. But this shows you the size of the task that Magnus and his Regency Council have on their hands. Just managing the land that they are now in control of, it, it's huge. Taking control of both countries means that there are only two players in Scandinavia at this point. Magnus is in control of most of modern-day Finland, Sweden, Norway, Iceland, Greenland, and the islands in the North Sea. And on the other side is Denmark. Pretty much just modern-day Denmark, with a slice of modern-day Estonia on top, the Danish duchy of Estonia. We gave a mini-spoiler in episode 49 that Danish king Erik Meenved is about to die at the end of the year 1319, and... That is still true. He dies in this year. But what kind of kingdom was he ruling over for those first few months uh, when Magnus took charge of Sweden and Norway? Well, it isn't a good one, that's for sure. Let's do a bit of a recap and history lesson of the last few decades of internal Danish politics. Let's rewind to November 1286. Yes, this was when King Eric Klipping was murdered by nine Danish nobles, one of whom was Jakob Nielsen, who listener Linda kindly added to his backstory uh, in the previous episode. Eric was succeeded by his son, another Eric, Eric Menved. This, to put it mildly, for some reason, annoyed the Archbishop of Lund, who said in possibly the craziest actual quote we've seen so far, It doesn't matter to me whether it is Duke Valdemar, a Jew, a Turk, a pagan, or the devil himself is king of Denmark, so long as it is neither Eric nor his brother Christopher. Wow! Strong words. And also racist words. Racist, anti-Semitic, uh, it's kind of everything there. He's, he's grouping Turks, pagans, Jews, and the devil in one thing, which is pretty strong for a Catholic archbishop. 
Yeah, not not nice, not nice at all. But this Archbishop of Lund supports the murderers in this internal struggle in Denmark, and he eventually even gives them land to build a fortress on, gives them church land and says, hey, I support you, build a fortress. And unsurprisingly, King Eric Menved doesn't take too kindly to this attitude and sends troops to imprison the archbishop. Too right. Yep. And that happened. After months in a horrible prison cell run by King Eric Menved's brother Christopher, the king sent a message to Bishop Jens to see if he would now swear allegiance to the crown and promise not to seek revenge for his captivity. So uh, knowing what we know about this uh, archbishop, what do you think he said? No. Yep, pretty much. In uh, slightly more eloquent words, he said, Rather than bend to his will, I would rather that the king sliced me apart joint by joint than submit to his commands. Yeah, that's a firm no. To make matters worse, Bishop Jens managed to escape with the help of a kitchen servant and ran straight to the Pope in Rome, who excommunicated the king and put all of Denmark under papal interdict until the kingdom paid Archbishop Jens 49,000 silver marks in compensation. I mean, this isn't good. No, but it's sort of like running to the mafia boss and say, say sorry and give me money. Give my little friend some money, otherwise i come and beat you up and send you to holy hell. But eventually this all gets sorted out. Eric has to apologise a few years later, the fine gets reduced by 80%, and the archbishop is actually given another job outside of Denmark to make sure he never has to see the king again. But either way, this whole affair is humiliating and still costs the king some money. And this is the theme of Eric's reign. He spends or loses a lot of money. He loved tournaments, and he basically acted like Oprah when paying for them. He went around Denmark and northern Germany saying, you get a tournament, you get a tournament, you get a tournament, and just paying for everything. At one tournament down in Rostock, wine, mead, and beer flowed for an entire month for anyone who wished to drink. And that's the correct verb for mead and wine, is flowing. <laughs> it's not just poured, but flowing. Ever wanting more money for more tournaments and an exuberant lifestyle, Eric came up with a load of new and unusual taxes to get as much money out of both the peasants and nobles all across Denmark. This both annoyed them further, but also wasn't enough. So when he needed more money to pay for his lifestyle, the king borrowed money from nearby German nobles. The situation was so bad that he even mortgaged pieces of Denmark to them. And this was on top of his military exploits. As we saw during the Swedish Civil War, Erik got involved in Swedish wars and at the same time fought many German towns and duchies, hiring costly German mercenaries to fight in all these wars. I mean, money was flowing as much as the wine was. 
and this monetary situation was only going to get worse. And this meant when famine struck Denmark in 1312, he basically demanded that people pay the same taxes as before, despite this not really being possible. Perhaps understandably, the peasants on the main Danish island of Zealand rebelled. But not being one to stand around when he was being questioned, Eric put the rebellion down fiercely, hanging hundreds of peasants outside Copenhagen. This is horrendous government. And the people see it as this. They won't be cowed by this king. So the next year, at an assembly, the peasants and nobles alike declare outright rebellion. Seeing as nobody in Denmark would fight for him, Erik needs more German mercenaries, and these come at a high price. He wins the war, though, and the nobles involved are exiled or executed, and their property taken by the crown. However, even all these spoils of war isn't enough money. He's also killed off a lot of his taxpayers, so he's going to be losing money in the long term. And soon the debt collectors come knocking. In 1313 unlucky year twice over, King Eric sold all the crown property in southern Jutland for good hard cash. To make matters even worse, just like in 1312, from 1315 to 1317 the crops failed again, and this time there was absolutely nothing left to tax. Turning up to ask the chief accountant of the realm, Eric would have been told that the royal treasury was completely and utterly empty. Not a penny was left. So in 1317, what else to do? Eric mortgaged all the island of Funen to two German counts. This is the second biggest island of Denmark, right in the centre of the country. For a comparison and example, 470,000 people live there today, so it's a huge island. And before he died, Eric still had time to mortgage the whole of Skorna to German nobles for money to continue his extravagances and pay for even more of these uh, mercenaries that are running around suppressing the people. So there's basically nothing left to Denmark now. Uh, not really. There's this monarchy floating around town executing peasants and nobles, but has no real control over the kingdom. And there's not really a Danish state left. Half the country or more is owned by independent German nobles. And this is the situation when Eric dies. Unsurprisingly, the rump Danish nobility take this opportunity to issue their own charter like the Magna Carta on his younger brother Christopher when he's crowned king. And this includes the council getting a right of veto on the declaration of war, which has always been the number one thing that medieval kings are in charge of. That's war, and they've taken this away from Christopher. Christopher received a bankrupt estate in which entire regions of the kingdom were mortgaged to German and Danish magnates. Norwegian historian Erik Uppsal relates that the conditions of the charter were very hard because they limited the monarchy's ability to levy taxes and as well as demanded higher payments on the mortgages and stopped him from taking important decisions like going to war. Among other things imposed by the council... Christopher could make no decision regarding the realm without the consent of the nobility and the bishops. That no bishop could be imprisoned, exiled or fined without the Pope's approval, 
no secular court could try any churchman, no church land or property could be taxed, the nobles could raise fees or rents on peasants, no noble could be forced to fight abroad or forced to pay to outfit soldiers to fight abroad. So that's a pretty extensive list of rules that curtails the new Danish king. I'm struggling to think of things he can do. <laughs> he can make toast. Yeah, he can make toast. Um, or actually, he probably can't, because the toaster hadn't been invented. And there's no bread. <laughs> yeah. He, he can sit on a chair. Yeah. And so sitting on a chair is what uh, Christopher does, but it doesn't take very long before he starts to try ruling as if the charter doesn't exist. And since he couldn't tax the church or Danish nobles, he levied disastrous taxes on the few German territories and peasants that the Danish king was lord over. And we'll see the results of this in coming episodes. Uh, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> what could be the possible outcome of this behaviour? Um, in terms of foreign policy, though, one of the first things that happens when Christopher takes the throne of Denmark is that the Swedish ruling council signs a non-aggression treaty with Denmark. This is good for them as it prohibits Christopher from trying to go to war and return exiled King Birger to power in Sweden. I know we said this about seven times already at this point, but this is the point that really signals the end for Birger, who hasn't been in power for a year or so at this point. So this is the point of no return, Mark 6. It really is. Uh, and this sort of brings us up to date to where we reached last time round. Magnus is king, albeit that he's three and can't do much. Uh, his mother, Ingeboy, is leading the Regency Council alongside Mats Schettilsson. Ingeboy's power base is down in Halland, where she has a castle called Axval, and the Duchy of Halland is confirmed as hers to rule as she saw fit. But she also asks for help from her cousin, and also her sister-in-law, Ingeboy Eriksdotter, the widow of Duke Valdemar. Whilst everyone is on the same side here, it is very clear that there is a lot of political manoeuvring going on. Mats Schettilsson's position as Drots, effectively a sort of prime minister, of Sweden seems to be on shaky ground. It's a bit unclear, but some sources appear to suggest that he resigns his position as Drots almost as soon as Magnus is confirmed as king. Uh, there is some confusion as to if this happens now, in 1319, or if it happens a few years later. Regardless of the exact timing, Mats Schettilsson remains on the Regency Council and remains a key guardian for the young king. Seeing as not much else changes right now, let's say he keeps his position for the moment. But be aware that some sources say another politician, a lawman from Östergötland called Knut Jonsson, takes up the role now in 1319. Knut Jonsson was a member of the council and had been a knight since 1305 and became a lawman in Östergötland in 1310. 
1311, he was actually dort for Birior for a while, but after the Neuschöping Jestabud, he switched sides and fought for the dukes during the Civil War. If he's not made Drotz again in 1319, he's still a big player, despite the uncertainty over the dates. Yes, uh, if he's not made Drotz now, it'll be in a few years' time. And it's starting to get a bit murky politically here. It hasn't taken long for the seeds of disruption to be sown inside the Swedish kingdom after the new king has been appointed. The calendar ticks over to 1320, and a few events we've already discussed happened. The Regency Council finally execute Magnus. That is, King Birger's son and general, not the current king. Yeah, no, that would have been dramatic. It definitely would. But no, not the king, but Magnus is executed, leaving ex-King Birger completely alone. Another event in 1320 is that Christopher is officially crowned as King of Denmark. It took him a few months to get round to doing this, even though he was still recognised as the king. Seeing as the country is actually falling apart, it's not too surprising that they waited a few months uh, to get round to actually doing the coronation. And that's it for 1320. It seems like the whole of Scandinavia, apart from these two events, decided to take a year off, catch their breath, finish some paperwork they'd been putting off, and generally take it easy for 12 months. Because perhaps they knew what was coming. I'm sure they were glad for the break of 1320 once 1321 rolled around. Oh, I'm sure they were. Uh, in April 1321, the first cracks start appearing in the relationship between Ingeboy and the two councils. It seems like Duchess Ingeboy, that is Ingeboy I, Magnus's mother, was a very strong-willed character, who wasn't afraid to include slightly dubious people in her entourage and stick two fingers up at the supposedly wiser and more experienced political men in the council, such as Mats Jettilsson and Knut Jonsson. This is because Ingeborg has good relations with many people in Denmark and also some German traders and cities. The Norwegian council goes as far as complain to the Swedish council, seen as the more superior regency council in many ways, certainly by the Swedes themselves. So the Norwegians complain to them about the conduct of some of these foreigners in Ingeborg's personal holdings and throughout the country. The Swedish council instructs the Norwegian one to advise Ingeborg that she should listen to the advice of the old experienced men in the court, aka themselves, rather than young inexperienced foreigners who might not even be on the council. The Swedes took this one step further, instituting a law banning foreigners from the Swedish council, clearly wary that Ingeborg may use her power to start appointing some of her favourites to the council and gradually take control of it. But there's good news for everyone apart from one person in Scandinavia to come. On the 31st of May 1321, King Birger of Sweden dies in exile, finally closing the last chapter of the disastrous Swedish Civil War period. Yeah, I can imagine that a few 
weary sighs and hoorays broke out across Sweden as people took a moment to recognise that their ex-king could cause no more harm. But that doesn't mean it's all peace and rainbows. No, because just a few months later, Ingeborg casts herself and her family deeper into the political game steadily brewing by signing a marriage contract. This isn't for Magnus the king, but for his sister, Euphemia, her daughter. The other party in the marriage was the House of Mecklenburg. The father in the contract was Henry II, Lord of Mecklenburg, and he was marrying away his very young son, Albert. At this point, Mecklenburg is one of the most important regions of northern Germany, and Henry II has spent most of his life fighting to keep it that way. So much so that he gained the nickname the Lion after a series of wars against the King of Germany and rival German cities, including the Hanseatic city of Rostock, which was actually in his territory but kept rebelling and trying to install independent councils who wouldn't listen to him. So after all this fighting, Henry is keen to gain more allies and expand his sphere of influence some more. On the 24th of July, 1321, in another of Ingeborg's personal fiefdoms in Buesland, three-year-old Albert of Mecklenburg is engaged to four-year-old Euphemia. And that's a true love story. Now, this wasn't just, or even at all, about love. This was very much a political and military alliance. I mean, they're just kids. The marriage contract included a very important term. Troops from Mecklenburg and from the region's German allies Saxony, Holstein and Schleswig would assist Ingeborg in an invasion of Skåne. Yeah, Ingeborg is throwing away the peace treaty with Denmark just two years later because she is keen to add the region to her personal holdings. After all, it was next to her duchy of Halland, so she might as well just colour Skåne the same as Halland on her giant map of Sweden that uh, I presume she kept in her office. Yeah, and this isn't just a casual decision made after a few beers on a Friday. This is marrying the king's only sibling away to a future German lord in exchange for the help of an invasion of Denmark to add to her own personal territory. Unsurprisingly, the Swedish council isn't impressed at all and makes it clear to Ingeborg that no such invasion should take place. Sweden isn't in the, in the situation to launch a war with Denmark. Even though Denmark is falling apart, Sweden is still recovering from a disastrous civil war. There doesn't seem to be an opinion expressed about the marriage as a whole, but there's to be no war against Skorna and Denmark. However, in a sign that the two countries are very much their own separate beasts, the Norwegian council actually approves of Ingeborg's plan. They aren't fond of Denmark, and they see this as a good opportunity to take advantage of a weak or even collapsing kingdom and seize some land. This is the first major disagreement between the two nations now they share a king. How the two groups of leaders interact with each other across the border will be an important way in shaping the very direction of the two kingdoms and is obviously a big cause of potential tension. 
But most importantly, Ingeborg has a decision to make. Should she attack a weak Denmark and potentially add a whole new duchy to her personal lands, but do so against the explicit wishes of her colleagues on the Swedish council, or back down and show the powerful men in the council that when push came to shove, the men were really in charge? But we'll have to see what Ingeborg decides to do next time. Yes, we feel that there was a fair amount to pack in this time so we'll have to see the conclusion of this drama with Ingeborg and the council and invading Denmark we'll have to wait and see that in two weeks time but until then we'll end with a quick review which is fantastic five stars on iTunes I've been listening to these podcasts on the way home from work over the last couple of months you can really hear how much effort has gone into their research and production Plus, the hosts are so welcoming and friendly. I'm not looking forward to when I catch up and have to ration it out to one show per fortnight. Taxamica from DJ Hill 90 uh, from the UK. Great, or fantastic even. Thank you so much, DJ Hill 90. And if you would like to do the same, uh, find your uh, iTunes account and scroll down and give us five stars. Or now even on Spotify, you can't uh, write a review, but you can give us... A number of stars between one and five. Or you can get in touch on social media, check out our website, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where we've got some new family trees and lots of other great stuff. Yeah, so with that being said, it's goodbye from us. Hey, Dale.